congratulations to the winner of our Stuckies photo contest. Alan Marsh, you have won our Stuckies snack pack, complete with two pecan log rolls and some hunky-dory, as well as some other fantastic stickers and postcards of the fabulous old time stop Stuckies. Remember, make your Stuckies stop when you're traveling across the country and you need some refreshment. Again, congratulations to Alan Marsh. is brought to you in living color on NBC. They'll know you've arrived when you drive up in the 1958 Edsel, the car that's truly new from nameplate to taillights. Connie! Hi, Mr. Wilson. Oh, hello, Dennis. And now your host, Walt Disney. Welcome to the Mid-Modcast, all things Mid-Century America. Let me try it, Paul. I'm going to try it. A tip-top, terrific, and splendidly prolific waltz down memory lane. I did it. I've been practicing and practicing that, and you just went ahead and said it. Well, you put the whiteboard so it's facing me. Uh -uh, so that's true. How... That's the teacher in me. School has going to start soon. Yeah. You want to say it? A tip-top, terrific, and splendidly prolific waltz down memory lane. That was, was nice. Long. Thank you. Yeah. you. Yours was a lot. I did it by heart. Yours was sultry. Thank you. Mine wasn't. Thank you. I'm Craig. Who are you people? I'm Paula. I'm Dave. We are talking about the space age today. This is going to be very exciting. This will be one of many programs, I predict, on this topic because there's just 100,000 different directions <laughs> that we could go with the space age. And uh, stay tuned because there's going to be a lot of fun and interesting stuff hopefully interesting anyway i'll try not to bore you too much uh i'm doing a little history so oh wait not history um i'm curating i'm uh entertain anyway paula if people wanted to email us find us on uh social media and all that kind of stuff Googly. Wh where do they go what do they do <laughs> they go to instagram facebook is huge lots of interaction on facebook yes the twitter the tweety they can email us at the midmodcast at gmail.com and they can call us too. That's right. Do you Anybody have the number handy? That funded? I do. Do you want me to tell wow. people our phone number? You have the number handy. I I'm do. Impressed. Uh, the number is 216 area code 3092204. And that will be in the show notes also. Oh if you boy. look down on the podcast, you oh, can. Yeah. And call, leave us a message, uh, hopefully something nice. Don't try to sell us stuff. We don't have any money. So that's going to be a lost cause. True that. Dave, how are you doing out there in St. Louis? We are doing great. We are getting ready to start a brand new school year. So lots going on in, in the Fritz household. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, this will air after it's all up and running, I'm sure. Right, but right. We're pre-recording yes. a bit here. <laughs> space race. I'm going to start just telling you a little bit about the space race. 
that sparked the imagination of the American people and people around the world, as a matter of fact. And it really kind of starts with World War II and a guy named Werner von Braun. I just like saying Werner. Can I say that? Werner von Braun. That's Braun with an N. Braun. Yeah. He was a rocket scientist for the Nazis and uh, part of the SS, which is really, you like that, Nancy's? Oh, I, I thought you said the Nancy's. The like Nancy's. he was really like a sissy boy, the Nancy's. He, he was, Nancy. he was a Nancy, Nancy boy. <laughs> you don't get us in trouble with our audience. Oh, that's true. I thought it was like a Karen. Yeah. No. Uh, anyway, with the Nazis, uh, he wanted to go to space. He wanted to go into outer space. He wanted to fly to Mars. He wanted to do all the kind of stuff that we want to do. He did this, it seems, mostly, and of course there's some debate on this, because he was a pragmatist and he wanted to make rockets and send them up into the air. Unfortunately, he helped develop this V-2 rocket, which rained all sorts of terror on England and that kind of thing. But the good thing is they didn't really have guidance system systems, so a lot of those just ended up out in the middle of a field and blew up a cow or two. Mm. Uh, some of them did land in populated areas, though. But terrifying stuff. He was very involved with all of this rocketry. He loved just the idea of going to space. As the war was coming to an end, 1945, it was clear that, the, that Germany was losing had lost pretty much. It was just a matter of cleaning up. Now, Americans had come into Germany, and there are a few army privates walking along the road in a very beautiful area. And a guy comes up riding a girl's bike that's about five sizes too small, <laughs> all wobbly and everything. And he gets off the bike, and in very broken English, he says, my name is Max. My brother's name is Werner. He is the top rocket scientist in Germany. We want to come to America. Take us to Eisenhower. And these are privates. And they say, um, we, we can't just take you to Eisenhower. Not only that, how do we know you're not trying to uh, uh, ambush us somewhere? So they say, I tell you what, instead of us coming to you, why don't you go get your friends and bring them to us? So Werner von Braun and a bunch of other German scientists had defected to America at this point. They had gone and hidden something like 14 tons of paperwork. The Germans love paperwork. Uh, and for it, now, yeah. Dave, you're a French instructor by, by trade. Uh, I don't imagine the French love paperwork as much as Germans. Is that, is that a fair assessment? Because I know the um, Italians. I, I, yeah, like I think paperwork. that's a pretty fair assessment. They, they like things, you know, kept orderly, but not More, a bunch of paper, no. Yeah, they have all their wine bottles Wrote. Exactly. Yeah, they're yeah. all they're all lined up nicely. So anyway, uh, Werner and, and his buddies all come out of hiding, and they've got buried in a mine, an uh, old retired copper copper mine, fourteen tons of paperwork, diagrams, scientific stuff. America is now huge in the space race because we've got Germany's top guys who had been developing all of these rockets. And had we not been bombing all of those factories that are making now these new jet engines and rockets and that sort of thing, World War II could have ended in a very different way. So he ends up coming to America. There's some uh, people who have hard feelings because he was a SS major. Anyway, he, he ends up coming to America. 1946, this is fascinating. October 24th, a captured V-2 rocket had been modified. America took off the explosive warhead, which is 
nice it's a good start and instead they put a bunch of cameras in it and they managed to modify it so that it would go a little higher than it normally would and the first pictures from outer space 105 kilometers above the ground i think it's 60 something miles above the ground the first pictures it, it's officially outer space you're not quite in orbit but you're outside of the earth's atmosphere they got uh, uh film you know movies and they and they got um pictures of, of outer from outer space of the earth you can go online and look that up so so do that look up v2 rocket and first pictures from outer space and you'll see them it's really really cool the soviets were really upset because we got Werner von braun and 14 tons of paper and they didn't get any paper apparently they could go to office depot they were kind of bent so they found some other rocket scientists from germany who were good but they weren't Werner von braun so anyway that film it was kind of cool they managed to rig it so that the film would drop back into the earth's atmosphere in this really sturdy canister and probably had a parachute i don't know along with the film by the way no wait i'm sorry it's the second rocket that they sent another v2n this one had fruit flies on board so fruit flies were the first animals to go into space 1957 there's a space race that's afoot Werner von braun keeps getting pushed back and forth army navy air force and and it's it's american bureaucracy at its finest <laughs> the russians get word that von braun is working on launching a satellite of course von braun is saying we can do this but the bureaucracy keeps getting in the way 1957 october 4th the ussr launches sputnik into the earth I mean, into orbit, rather, Earth's orbit. There it is, flying around in outer space, and America freaks out. Of course, they have something flying around out there. Now, it's the size of a large beach ball. It's 24 inches across with four little antennas sticking out. And it's doing very, very nefarious things flying out there. It's flying around, going beep, beep, beep. Ooh, nefarious. As dangerous i mean that's like mind control stuff right there so america is losing their mind because we are behind in the space race the soviets are ahead Werner von braun is saying guys i told you we could have done this six months before them but you can't seem to get with the program here in uh 1958 the u.s enter the space race by launching explorer one the first satellite to reach orbit and it carried experimental equipment that led to the discovery of the van allen radiation belt and you can google that for yourself because i'm not going to google it for you october 1st 1958 the national aeronautics and space administration is created in the u.s that's known as nasa to you and me uh 1958 the u.s launch score the world's first communication satellite to capture the world's attention so we get the first communication satellite out there in orbit stable orbit and it broadcasts a human voice from space now that's scary there's not a human on board there's just a recording and it's president eisenhower's christmas address so it circled the earth for a long time giving christmas greetings to the whole world isn't that nice <laughs> 1959 the ussr launches luna one known as the first cosmic rocket it accidentally escaped oh they were sending it out by the way to orbit the moon and uh, they made it a little too fast and <laughs> it broke orbit with the moon and just kind of kept going and it's floating around out there somewhere beyond Still. the earth's gravitational pull so uh it is the first man-made 
device to go into the sun's orbit instead of Earth's orbit. So that, that's kind of the unique thing there, accidentally, but there it is. And so the Russians keep working at this sort of thing. Uh, they finally created the Luna 2, which accomplishes the mission of being the first spacecraft to reach the surface of the moon. Now, this is unmanned, and so they sent, uh, at least we believe it's unmanned. You never know, but uh, they sent it to the moon, and um, it's stuck in the moon somewhere now. They ended up putting something else that cir circled the uh, moon for a while in orbit there. 1960, aboard the Soviet Union Sputnik 5, the first animals, two dogs, Belka and Strelka, and a range, of, a range of plants are returned alive from outer space. So the first living thing to go into space and come back. That's pretty cool. Unharmed. I don't know about that. But they came back. Alive. 1961, <laughs> Americans sent the uh, a, champ, a chimpanzee into space, uh, the first hominoid, and uh, came back alive. And by the way, the Russians prefer dogs to monkeys because dogs are more cooperative. 1961. Soviet Union achieve a clear triumph in the space race aboard the Vostok 1. Yuri Gregarin, we know that name from the history, makes a single orbit around the space around the, the earth rather and becomes the first man to reach space and he remained in space for a whole hour and 48 minutes. Landed back safely in Russia. 1961, the U.S. achieved the first pilot-controlled journey and first American in space, Alan Shepard, aboard Mercury Redstone 3. And uh, he did not orbit the Earth, but he flew 116 miles into space and came right back. 15 minutes, that's a quick round trip. 1963, uh, Valentina, I didn't practice this, Tereshkova becomes the first civilian and first woman in space. She's not military. They just abducted her off the streets, threw her in a rocket, and sent her up. I made that part up. 1967, this is the most deadly year of the space race for oh, both the yeah. U.S. and the Soviet Union. Astronauts Ed White, Gus Grisham, and Roger Chafee die in a fire ignited in their Apollo capsule on the launch pad. That was tragic. Only a few months later, Soviet cosmonaut Vladimir Kamarov is also killed when the parachute in his Suez 1 capsule failed to open in his re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere. Oh, that's awful. Just plummeting all those miles. Ugh, terrible. 1969, July 20th. Neil Armstrong and later Edwin Buzz Aldrin become the first men to walk on the moon while their crewmate, Michael Collins, continues to orbit the moon aboard Apollo 11. You know, Collins is feeling a little ripped off. He I'm got sure to. He, he must. It's like, come on, guys. <laughs> I, I want to play. Uh, this secured victory for America in the space race with televised landings witnessed around the world by 723 million people. Uh, 1970 Apollo 13 mission is known as the first explosion on board a spa spacecraft where the crew re survived, and we've all seen that movie. Yeah. Uh, wonderful movie. From here, Russia, the Soviet Union, gave up on the whole idea of landing on the moon. They refocused onto the space station. And that thing has mm. been being added onto and added onto well into the 2000s and mm. uh, is, is an ongoing work. 
few fun facts. The first animals sent into space were those fruit flies. I mentioned that already. Yuri Gregarin, here's a great fun fact, started a tradition. As the bus was driving him out to the rocket, he told the driver to pull over. The driver pulled over. He got out and urinated on the back right tire of the bus. And this became a tradition for all astronauts <laughs> traveling into space. If you want to be an astronaut, you have to get out and pee on the back tire of the bus. For Just the ladies who have gone in into space, as well. this is astronaut <laughs> imperative stuff. For the women, too. The women will bring things. a vial of their urine and fling it on. Oh, okay. Really? Are you yes, making that no, up? No, no, oh. this is... It's, I know, it sounds like he's making that up. Yeah, this, this is, is the superstitious... <laughs> this is what the uh, website said. And websites oh can't lie goodness. because they're on the internet. So there. Uh, <laughs> 1971, Alan Shepard became the first human to play golf on the moon. Fun oh. fact. Didn't know that, did you? No, I didn't. Who was the last man to walk on the moon? His name was Eugene Cernan, C-E-R-N-A-N. He was the mission commander of the Apollo 17 mission that occurred between December 11th and 14th, 1972. This is after we had started, stopped caring, I guess, and stopped watching because I never heard his name. Uh, so, yeah, there it is. Anyway, I have gotten a little tedious. And so... <laughs> Dave, get get some music. Let's chill us out. Yeah, let's let's talk about some music. So, yeah. you know, we've talked a lot about suburbia entertaining at home, the cars and the movies of the era, as well as watching movies of the era in your car, uh, and just a little bit about mid-century modern music. So, high fidelity sound systems for the home really took off in the fifties. Record changers became popular, and then stereo came along in nineteen fifty-seven. And by the way, for those who don't know that that term, a record changer, that's where you could stack several records at a time on a turntable and they would play one at a time and, you know, one would drop down after the one before it finished. So, you know, you could entertain people in your home, serve them all cocktails and not have to worry about getting back to the turntable to turn the record over yeah. because music, the next one was going to fall. Music. Hey, Dave, I finally got a turntable. But it's a newer one. I was looking for one of those stackers, man. and I couldn't find a stacker anywhere. Yeah, they're hard to find. Yeah, I guess they don't. Anyway. They don't make them anymore. And then he went to a resta no. resale store and bought a bunch of records too. Dave. Yeah, I did. You'd yeah, be man. so proud. Anyway, that's enough about awesome. me. <laughs> All right. So during the space age, labels were releasing slickly produced albums to spark con consumers' imagination of space travel planetary exploration and even romance in space <laughs> <laughs> i saw it's james bond <laughs> it's essentially easy listening music spiced up with mega channel separation vibes and xylophones polyphonic percussion Ooh. and that spooky ethereal instrument known as the theremin <gasps> star trek yeah but for me, two names automatically come to mind when I hear the term space age music or space age bachelor pad music. <laughs> and those names would be Les Baxter and Juan Garcia Esquivel. Mm -hmm. 
What you're hearing here is Saturday Night on Saturn, a track from Les Les Baxter's 1958 Capitol release, Space Escapade. And this this is one fabulous album. One reviewer that I I saw, uh, his review said that this LP showcases all of the eclecticisms and sensual orchestral effects that are Baxter's remarkable trademarks. Leslie, or Les Baxter, by the way, started out as a big band sax player and then later was a vocalist for the Meltones, Mel Torme's vocal group. However, he's most well known for his time at Capitol Records as an arranger and conductor. In addition to his Space Age output, he's also considered one of, if not the, originator of exotica music. If you have a chance, check out his 1951 LP, Ritual of the Savage, which features the Baxter composition, Quiet Village. Mm. Yes. But getting back to Space Escapade, the cover of this LP, which I'll, I'll I'll post it on the Facebook page, is pretty amazing. It shows a rocket in the background that has landed on a mist covered planet. And in the foreground, two astronauts in 50s era spacesuits are surrounded by sexy space women. They're all enjoying exotic colored cocktails and frosted brandy snifters. Space age indeed. (laughs) And the LP contains tracks like Shooting Star, Moonscape, Mr. Robot, and Somewhere in Space. Definitely worth checking out. So now, feast your ears on Frenesy from Esquivel's 1958 release, Other Worlds, Other Sounds, on RCA's Living Stereo label. Juan Garcia Esquivel was a Mexican band leader, pianist, and composer, and is considered the king of space-age pop. Other Worlds, Other Sounds, his first USA RCA release, shows off his fondness for stereo effects. He also employed exotic percussion, exaggerated dynamic shifts, and wordless vocals. Paula, being a vocalist, you'll appreciate that he would get the singers usually to sing things like, wow, pow, or Suzu. Ooh, that's a good word, Suzu. <laughs> um, my favorite Esquivel trademark sound is the steel guitar often performed by Alvino Ray. In the 90s, most of Esquivel's catalog was reissued after being rediscovered by music historian and record producer Erwin Chessid. And like Space Escapade, Other Worlds, Other Sounds features a beautiful space woman, this time on what looks to be the the on what looks to be the surface of the moon. She's dressed in a red leotard <laughs> and is holding up a large sheer red scarf. <laughs> Definitely otherworldly. And by the way, we're um, putting together a Space Age Pop playlist on Spotify to accompany this episode. So be sure to check it out uh, for more Baxter and Esquivel tunes, um, among others. We'll try to remember to put a link in the show notes for that. Ah, uh, yes, definitely. Yeah. 
So, who's up? Paula. Ah, Paula. Yeah, I was just thinking, I want to see that picture, the moon picture. It sounds so fascinating. Oh, yeah. They're, they're both uh, sexy album covers for sure. Yeah, we'll post that on our Facebook for, for all you folks. And um, I thought of, I kind of Googled space, space uh, age and space themes in the Google, and I came up with a googie, not Google, but googie. Yeah, my husband looks like you, he's shocked. No, you, you remind Googie. me of that uh, YouTube oh. with the Italian grandma with the Google oh, device, and she, yes, hey Google. <laughs> yeah, that's a gr- it's funny. They're trying to teach uh, their Italian grandma how to use um, Google, which is like Alexa, and she keeps calling it Googie. Anyway, Googie really caught my imagination because I'd heard the term a lot, and I hear it from Charles Phoenix, but I don't quite know what Googie is, and what does it have to do with space age, and what's the difference between that and and pop, you know, uh, architecture? What is it? Anyway, Googie was born in good old Southern California, our hometown, and basically, uh, it was a, a an attempt to get attention because they wanted these buildings to stand out and they increased their size and they increased their weirdness just to get those cars to stop and pull over because we've talked about this in past episodes, it's really becoming a car culture. And Calif- Southern California, unlike the Midwest and the Eastern towns, uh, we didn't really have toll roads at that time with turnpikes and these specific restaurants that you go to. I remember when I first moved to the Midwest, I would see, you know, names of all the restaurants that you'd pull over to this town and here they were. You don't really see that in California. We are the land of the freeway and there's lots and lots of restaurants vying for your attention. So Googie is basically the whole entire restaurant is the sign it's kind of the sign for that establishment and i'm like where is that kooky named googie where'd that come from and there was actually a coffee shop in west hollywood designed by john lautner who as a student of frank lloyd wright and the name of that coffee shop was called googies it was a chain and it was a nickname his wife's nickname was googie and they didn't last unfortunately they were all torn down in the 1980s and This architect critic, Douglas Haskell, he coined the term after driving by these Googie's coffee shops, and he's like, this is absolutely wretched. He was not a fan. He thought it was so tacky and just so Hollywood. Um, There was no taste, no refinement, and he's like, oh, he called them all Googie's, and the name stuck. And it's, what is Googie? It's a basically a type of futuristic architecture, and it was very much, like I said, influenced by the car culture, the jets, the space age, and the atomic age, which I think is pretty cool because it's all rolled into one thing. And it represents American, American society's fascination with all the space age things space age themes and that marketing on and emphasis on these futuristic designs and those characteristics they are bold they are car stopping they are built on exaggeration lots of roofs that slope at an upward angle so those very curvaceous roofs curvaceous uh, geometric shapes starbursts think of the good old welcome to las vegas sign one of my favorites 
bold use of, of many materials, stone, glass, steel, linoleum, formica, <laughs> cork, concrete, brick, plastic, and of course, neon signs, characterized by space age designs that symbolize any kind of motion. So that's why we get the boomerang in there. We get the flying saucer, we get atomic bursts, and we also have very bright colors, very funky geometric shapes, and we actually have tail fins on buildings. The signage of these wonderful places, they usually uh, boast sharp and bold angles, and they and tend to suggest like this aerodynamic features of a rocket ship. The buildings were kind of intended to appear to sort of defy gravity. So they tried to create the illusion that the building is kind of hanging from the sky which I thought was just fascinating. Um, lots of rocket ships and nuclear, nuclear energy motifs. And if you ever watched the Jetsons, it is just dripping with Googie. It was um, all created at Hanna-Barbera Studios in Hollywood. So all the director, all the animation people, all they had to do was just look down the street. And that was pretty much their inspiration for the Jetsons. And by the way, I just looked it up and the Jetsons was supposed to be taking place in 2062. Did you know that, that little is tidbit? I did. Yes. And another uh, really googie-tastic building. My husband and I know this building well. The theme building at LAX, something yes. we grew a beautiful up. Beautiful example. Yes, from our childhood. Always wanted to go in there, never did, and now I've lost that chance. Um, Pan's Coffee Shop, an another extraordinary example, and that's in Ladera Heights. Charles Phoenix is as. Oh, he does a lot, a lot on Pan's, Pan's Coffee yeah. Shop, right? We have yet to go, but next trip back home, my husband has promised. Me that Wait, we will I've go. done something Southern California-ish that you guys haven't. Oh, you've oh, yeah. been to Pans. Oh, Pans is definitely worth the trip. Oh, uh, yeah. get, Dave, um, why have chicken and waffles? It's really good. Oh, it's a chicken and waffle place too. No, oh, they haven't. No, they, they haven't. They have any it. kind of diner food you would want. But, oh, yeah. okay, fabulous. If you, if you want the best of chicken and waffles, you have to go to Roscoe's. Roscoe's, so. right? And then that Bob's Big Boy Broiler in Downey is huge too, and. And then we have, of course, Dave has mentioned before, Monsanto's House of the Future. Oh, yeah. And all of the Tomorrowland that was of the 60s, too. And something I have seen and been to, the oldest McDonald's is in Downey, California. My best friend in college lived in Downey. So you, that has a 30-foot high golden arches. So oh, wow. when I talked about exaggerations, that's how the old Mickey D's were exaggerated golden arches and of course norms that was a restaurant that my husband mm. and i grew up with and i believe there are still norms with the googie architecture in our hometown i or sure has hope norms there been are. torn down i don't know i know most of them are gone but uh, I, I, I hope there's some i left. hope there's some you know, that am I remembering correctly for the norm sign? Yes. Each letter of norms mm -hmm. was in its own ge geometric shape, right? Kind of looked right. like uh, a, a a flip triangle, like a flag. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. you do know norms. Yeah, and those, a, those yeah. were great little yeah examples of uh, googie architecture. And we went to norms after we saw Psycho too. Oh. Get it, Norman Bates, Norm. Wow. So we went to Norm's uh, uh, right out. Ooh. It was kind of a theme thing. Yeah, my parents <laughs> went for the whole theme. And of course, the Space Needle in Seattle, Seattle 
Two other names for Googie are Doo-Wop. Have you ever heard that mm, term? Yeah. And no. Populux. I think Popul- I'm saying Populux. That sounds familiar. Populux. I've heard Populux, but I've never heard Doo-Wop architecture. I kind of like that one. And what I love about the uh, the Googie the googie is that it was used for motels coffee houses and gas stations and i would also add car washes because that was huge too they were not custom houses for the wealthy they were for your average joe everyday buildings that you go to the bank you know everyday buildings that people of that period would use so it brought that spirit of the modern age to your daily life it, it googie really captured the post post-war high that made people feel that the future was now and we are living it so that was the the cool thing about uh, googie i have a uh, one little co- quote if you want to learn more uh, alan hess is an author who writes extensively on Googie, and most of my little factoids are from him. Um, and he says, this is kind of what happened to the Googie, but he, his quote is, but by, the ni- by 1970, Hess says that the architectural culture had changed. The interest in the future, the gee whiz factor, factor about plastics and nuclear power and space flight travel to the moon all of these things had been new and exciting in the 1950s and it now had become more mundane we landed on the moon in 1969 and then it was over and also at that time new ideas came in specifically the um, ecology movement, which began to say that we do have limits on how we could use our own resources and an interest, you know, more of an interest on lower scale, residential, traditional architecture. It just came into fashion and Googie was out. And unfortunately there was, there has been a movement to save these buildings, but many, many, many of them were destroyed and so I, I don't know. I, what do you think of Googie? I love it. Personally. You love it, but, okay? You know, once again, I, I'm always reminded also of the car washes in Southern California. Very much so. So many of them had Googie elements to the signage and that sort of thing. It was always fun. I find it fascinating that it's a futuristic look to what people think the future would look like, but yet they were living in these buildings. In the present, I, I, I find that rather fascinating, and I don't know of many times that that do that sort of stuff. I don't know. Dave, is there you're part of the preservation <laughs> society out there? Are there any googie buildings that uh, you guys are involved in? Oh yeah, helping to stay alive. Yeah, there is a very famous um, uh, saucer shaped building um, in South Saint uh, South Saint Louis on South Grand. Um, it was built by or designed by architect Richard Hemney, who we recently lost. Um, And in the 60s, it started out as a Phillips 66, but over the years, since it was close to St. Louis University, um, it turned into fast food eateries like Noggles, Del Taco, et cetera. And then in the early 2000s, a developer bought the land that that building sits on and he had planned to tear it down. This this beautiful <gasps> oh. saucer shaped building, nothing like it in the St. Louis area. So Modern STL and other preservation groups, um, we joined forces and we were able to save this building. <clears throat> Pardon me. We um, we showed the developer how he could 
take the building and repurpose it. So it's now a, um, a Starbucks coffee and a Chipotle. Uh-huh. Uh, they split the, the property in half and it is now the highest grossing Starbucks coffee shop in the St. Louis area. Or nice. at least it was. So it's popular. People go. It's super popular and awesome. it's beloved by many St. Louisans. So hopefully we'll have it for a long time. Yeah. It's also right down the street from St. Louis University. So you get a lot of that traffic from Perfect. the college and Starbucks. We all need a coffee yeah. jolt in Carl yeah. College. Yeah. yeah. I know I need caffeine. Isn't there that, also classes. that giant sign in St. Louis too? The giant gas station? The, the standard, Amico? Yeah. The Amico or standard sign. Yeah. Is that considered googie? I don't know. It's weird, and googie's kind of a part of the weirdness. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And by the way, I don't math very well, so I had to pull out my calculator to figure out, Paula, that (laughs) the the hosts of the mid-modcast will only be 98 in 2062. Oh, Oh, hope we get a flying car. I know. Be the old lady flying her car around. I'm going to be a brain and a bottle on top of a robot by then. (laughs) (laughs) speaking of that kind of weird stuff i'm going to wrap up the program with talking a little bit about television especially cartoons that are so space age of course television in general you can't not mention at least mention star trek because that's the most iconic of all space age programs and, of course, you can go to conventions dedicated to that one. I don't know that there are Jetsons conventions, but there are threats that there's going to be a live-action Jetson movie that may be coming out sometime uh, before that year of 20, or, uh, 2062. Uh, so, who knows? Maybe around 2060 it'll be released. We don't really know. The Flintstones lived in a comical land in the Stone Age where they had animals doing all sorts of functions around the house very convenient to have a little elephant to vacuum and that sort of thing the jetsons on the other hand have robots and robotic things and it's amazing how many of these things have come to pass oh of course just like star trek how many of these things have come to pass Robotic vacuum cleaners. Yeah, uh, we've we gone through one. a couple of Roombas that have broken on us. Yep. But, uh, you know, you, you have a lot of these sorts of things already. Uh, holograms and uh, all sorts of inventions. The original series compromised only 24 episodes and was on for one year on ABC. It came back in the 80s, but the original series was only one year. And oh. the problem was ABC put it out in color but very few of the ABC affiliates in 1962 were broadcasting in color. I remember what I read a few episodes ago. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and a lot of didn't people didn't it. have color televisions. And the Jetsons just doesn't transfer to black and white. That's right. In, in a way that, it, because it's so colorful. And of course, the future 2062 is, is going to be incredibly colorful. Optimism. So it's a yes. So they are a family, the Jetsons, residing in Orbit City. The architecture is Googie. And uh, I think you mentioned that all that the... To the max. All that the people at Hanna-Barbera or whoever did this had to do was look out the window in L.A. in 1962, and it was Googie City right there. Yep. So, hey, you know what? I'm going to draw that car wash and make it someone's house or someone's work or something like that. 
1963, it ended September 22nd. It debuted as the first program in color on ABC, and that didn't work out so well. The Jetsons, by the way, lived in this googie land high above the ground, adjusted columns. The 1980s version says that it's because of the smog that they lived up there and uh, that was really problematic george lives with his family in the sky pad apartments (laughs) his wife is jane the happy homemaker their teenage daughter judy attends orbit high school elroy attends does anyone remember the name of the school little dipper school oh Oh, i do little dipper school (laughs) the house is kept by rosie the robot and uh astro is the name of their dog uh he would be the the archetype i guess for scooby-doo because because rastro could speak he just used ours a lot uh george jetson by the way worked for spacely sprockets (laughs) and cosmo spacely is the boss now did you know this george works a grueling work week he works two to three days a week for one hour a day. <laughs> really? One hour a day. Oh, I want to live in that wow. Yeah. So he, it, and Mr. Spacely is always threatening to fire everyone. Uh, but despite all of this, this exhausting work week, he lives with all of the inconveniences of having everything done for him by machines. <laughs> and somehow they muddle through this terrible life and they, they make ends meet and they, they, <laughs> they make it through okay. So anyway, uh, the Jetsons, still a lot of fun to watch. I had no idea it was only one season initially. The 80s version, eh, I wasn't a real big fan of that. But, okay. Uh, we'll they had see, a couple good songs. We'll see what comes up. Oh, <laughs> Eep, Op, Orc, Ah, Ah, yeah. means I love you. <laughs> yes, I love that one. Yeah, we just watched that last night. Finally, a program that I loved and is still near and dear to my heart, Lost in Space. I loved Lost in Space. Paula, you have mocked me for watching Lost in Space. Oh, no! <gasps> you have the robot, day. I have a B9 Sorry, we, robot. you guys can't see this at home. Oh, Take my a screenshot. <laughs> Dave has the robot. He just had now, it is, is at the, arm's length. Is there a difference between Robbie the robot and the robot from Lost in Space? Lost in Space. Is it the same robot? You no, know. it's not the same robot at all. I know they were both designed by the same guy, Robert Kinoshita. I think was his name. Um, they there was a there was an operator inside both of them. Um, so an actual human being. No, don't like, say that. They're real. Oh, sorry, They're, sorry. Man, you and wrecked it's funny everything. Because sometimes in the uh, in the first season episodes, you can you can see that he's just wearing the torso and just walking around. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah. This is um, this came out in like the late nineties, I think, and uh, the it it used to say it used to say all the famous you know danger real Will Robinson, oh. but. Um, I think it needs batteries, but it oh, lights yeah. up. It's pretty cool. His Thank chest plate do. blinks. Woohoo! Dave has some toys. <laughs> this futuristic program 
is set in the distant future, October 16th, 1997. Oh, boy. The United States States is gearing up to colonize space because we are overcrowded. Ah. And Jupiter 2, a futuristic saucer-shaped aircraft, stands at the launch, launch pad ready to undergo final preparations. Its mission is to take a single family on a five-and-a-half-year journey to Earth to an Earth-like planet orbiting the star Alpha Centauri. The Robinson family consists of Professor John Robinson, his wife Maureen, their three children, Judy, Penny, and Will. The family is accompanied by U.S. Space Corps Major Don West. Uh, the Robinsons and Major West are to be cryogenically frozen for the voyage, and they're set to be unfrozen when the spacecraft approaches its destination. We know what happens. Dr. Zachary Smith goes on board to sabotage the whole thing. And, of course, all sorts of mayhem breaks out from there. His extra weight sends them off course. And somehow, I don't know if there's a fight involved or what, they hit the hyperspace and they end up in galaxies unknown trying to find their way back. This is based on the Swiss family Robinson, but in space. And it is fan diddly tastic. <laughs> if you get a chance, go back and watch the old shows because it just doesn't get much better than that. And by the way, did you two know that um, I, th- I think it's Netflix uh, relaunched the show a couple of years ago? Yes. Oh, did I know that? Oh, yeah. my husband's been yes. watching. Yeah. And I, I thought it was cool that they actually let Maureen be a geologist this time or whatever she was, whatever her doctor it was in because remember in the original series she like folded laundry and prepared <laughs> oh, oh she wasn't a scientist in the original she in the pilot episode i believe they say you know she's a microbiologist or a geologist or something but we never see her do that oh stuff. she oh that's really in sad the, oh. in the new series which is really pretty good. Um, she's an actual scientist. Yeah. She sciences yeah. the heck out of that show now. Yeah. Awesome. And uh, uh, the uh, Zachary Smith is not Zachary Smith, but a fake Dr. Smith played by one of Paula's favorite actresses of all time. Who? Actresses? Yeah. Um, oh, gosh. Oh. Why can't I, I, I? It was just uh, Parker Posey. Oh, Parker Posey's in it. Oh, I yeah, love her. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Tr- trivia, trivia question, Craig. Do you remember in the episode where she stole that badge? Who she stole it from? Uh, on on the new one. On the new one. No, I don't recall. It was Billy Moomy making. Oh, oh, they had him on the show. <laughs> He's also the kid who sent people to the cornfield. On, sa- oh, on yeah. uh, Twilight Zone, oh, he was always right. scaring yeah. me, that kid. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, if you have any fond memories of any of these programs, of the space race, yeah. any suggestions for Space Age bachelor pad swinging music, or if you know of any cool googie buildings in your area, find us on Facebook and share that stuff with us. We really love to hear from people, and we, we love to have people share all of their knowledge with us and pictures and all sorts of stuff. So please do that. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast. Give us a decent rating because we have fat heads and we like to have our ego stroked. So that's very important to us. <laughs> so appreciate it. Any, any last words, friends? I think we're talked out. All right. Until next time. Until next time. We'll see ya. 